The Morning's Bitch is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about faith, spirituality, culture, and the world. Are you tired of the church? Fed up with religious bigotry? Well, you've come to the right place. of The Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm Sam White. I'm KT Ricks. I'm Malcolm David. And this is the first podcast from our new media collective, Theolab. You can find out more about that online by visiting thetheolab.com or following us on social media using the handle at thetheolab. Today's episode of The Mourner's Bench will include more information about this podcast, a discussion about organized religion, and faith and politics. So friends, let's get right into it. The Mourner's Bench. That's a really weird name for a podcast. David, you're a Methodist. Y'all know, you know all about this, right? Nah, man. I don't know anything about The Mourner's Bench. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Neither did Brandon. He called it the Mourner's Bench for like the first time. <laughs> Which is also a thing. Yeah, so the Mourner's Bench has this uh, history in the Methodist tradition of being uh, a space. It's a literal bench uh, most of the time in the front of the church. And it's this space for people to kind of come uh, and to sit and to you know wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's a place of confession and repentance and this space where we go to hope for new life. We hope for a new thing. Um, It's not something I really knew about uh, being in the Methodist church, to be honest with you. It's not a concept I was familiar with, but I I do find myself really resonating with that idea of having like a physical space set aside, this, this place where we go and expect God or the holy or the sacred to come and to, to meet us, to be in community with us. Um, there's also this kind of sense of irony for me with the concept of the mourner's bench. Um, I'm in church all the time and I very rarely feel God come and like meet me there. Um, <laughs> Ain't that the truth. Right, like that idea that I would have this space set aside as something I yearn for and also something that I don't really feel like I uh, sense very often. When I think about my own experience, uh, being an ordained uh, pastor in the Baptist church, it started on what we would call the mourner's bench in a revival. Um, my sister and I kind of dedicated our lives to God and chose to go sit on this physical space, as David has mentioned, uh, signifying that we're giving our life to God. And and as an outward show of that, we wanted to be baptized. And so it all started on the mourner's bench. And then we were baptized. And then my journey uh, to becoming an ordained Baptist preacher kind of began in that physical space. So that's what the, that's, that's the meaning of the mourner's bench for me. So one, yes, I did call it the Moaner's Bench for quite some time, which is something very different. But the term, well, no, my uncle didn't tell me it was called the Moaner's Bench. I think I just heard the Moaner's Bench, probably my, my, like my repressed gay self, <laughs> like wanting to sit somewhere. <laughs> Not going down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but no, my, my uncle, um, who's a pastor, would reference the Moaner's Bench anytime I did something wrong. Anytime that I did anything that was perceived to be backsliding, he'll be like, oh, you got to go sit on the Mourner's Bench. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Um, So I grew up hating the term and not viewing it as any sort of space where there was hope or there was the possibility of salvation or restoration. It felt really punitive and it felt really judgmental. It felt like there was a lot of, like a huge 
power dynamic present in that that I just wasn't comfortable with. Um, yeah, Katie, what about you? Yes, when you said, David, that it was in the front of the church, that's probably why I, as a Presbyterian, haven't heard of it because we don't sit in the front of the church ever. Um, it also sounds emotion-laden, like mourning is emotions, and we Presbyterians like to stay in our head a lot. So it took me a while to get a handle on it, but it is what I realized eventually was that it's this confessional place. And so many people talk about confession as, a, as I'm a horrible person. These are all the bad things I've done. But at some point, I think it was when I came to seminary, I realized that this confessional place was really this place of ultimate grace. It is the place where we can bring everything before God, our whole selves, our, our fears, our sorrows, our sins, our brokenness, and God meets us there with love and with open arms. And so for me, that this mourner's bench is the place where we can be most authentically in relationship with God or most authentically ourselves. Mm. And so... Um, when I thought about that, I was like, this is, this is a great name for a podcast because here we are, all of these different people from all of these different places, and we're coming here with our wrestlings and our frustrations and our sorrows and our joys, and we can be ourselves in this conversation. So we're talking a lot about the church and... Um our own perceptions of that are clearly embedded in what we're saying. And I think it's important for a podcast that talks about spirituality with three ordained people and for folks who at some point or another were committed to religious life to kind of locate ourselves. So like Katie, what's your relationship with the church been like? When I was growing up, my dad was in the army. So I moved around every two to three years. Um, and what I learned was that the church was, um, the church was the place that became home. It was the place where I felt like I could, be myself. I, I knew the liturgy. I knew the songs. I, I knew what Sunday school was going to look like when I walked in. I knew the people were going to smile and welcome me when I showed up. And that was the place where I actually felt seen. So it had a huge impact on my growing up. And I was ordained a deacon at 16 and, and participated in all of the things that you could participate in. Um, but after college, I came out uh, conveniently at the same time that I was sensing a call to ministry. Mm. And so um, I was sensing a call to ministry. The denomination was putting in uh, laws against queer people being ordained. And, um, and so I, the doors were shut to my ordination for, for a good long while. How long is a good long while, just to be precise? Just to be precise, I was in the ordination process for 14 years before. Wow. And what standard? Um, two to three. So not 14. Not 14. I mean, there are people who were at 20 or 30, but not 14. And um, (laughs) I think that's where the disillusionment came. And, And I have still been trying to figure out what my relationship is with the church now. I, 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 that which sustained me as, as a kid growing up, or even when I was coming out, um, no longer gives me life. That is, uh, I think that's interesting because I can identify a lot with what you just mentioned, Katie. Now, mm-hmm. not um, white. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You're not a white lesbian? <laughs> I'm not a white, no. I'm oh not a white lesbian God. woman, as far as I know. I don't see color. I don't, I don't see gender. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, 
so much of my own journey I can identify, especially um, in not a military brat either. We didn't move around much, but uh, because of how I grew up, my mom and my dad went through a divorce um, early in my childhood. Uh, we, we did move early in my childhood, and so um, I was lonely as a kid, and I found belonging in the church. It became a place of comfort for me, a place where gifts could... Um, be nurtured and identified and and I could have the space to explore who I was um, in the church. And so I grew up with this affinity for the church and for this sort of organized religion. And for most of my childhood into adulthood, it has been that. It has been this this avenue for me to kind of understand myself and the gifts that I have in this world. And it's later in my adulthood that I kind of ran into some of those challenges with the church, but kind of ran into leaders who shouldn't be leaders in the church, who have egos, who have their own agendas. Um, and so, you know, it's most of my issues have come post-seminary with the church, and I finished seminary in 2015. Um, and it's just been it's just been crazy. The relationship that I have with the church now is really love-hate. I love the people, um, the structures that are within the church. I wish we could tear them all down. Sam, your, your comment about that love-hate relationship with the church um, just feels familiar to me. I, it's hard for me to talk about my relationship with the church without reference to my parents. Um, Sam, similar to you, my folks got divorced when I was really young. Um, I look back and just wonder how they ever lived together, did life together. They are so completely different. Um, my mom has this really like, kind of simple but deep faith. Um, she grew up in a rural part of South Carolina, uh, not a very pleasant or very easy childhood, um, an alcoholic father. Uh, and the church for her was this place of refuge. It was the place to get away, to escape uh, all of these really terrible things that were happening uh, in the world and, and in her life and even in her home. Um, and so my mom has this really deep and abiding sense of faith, uh, but it's also very simple to her. It just, you know, all the numbers add up all the lines connect, uh, and it's just something that you kind of accept as as true, and then you take that as your your source of strength, you know, in in hard times. Um, for a long time, I think I kind of resonated with that idea of of religion, of the church, as this place of of refuge, but as this place of like simplicity. Um, and as I got older, I just started feeling like there was more to it, like the numbers maybe didn't add up. Um, and I've realized I, my, my dad is very different from my mom. He has kind of no interest in organized religion at all and, and never has. Um, he's a sort of fundamentally skeptical person. Um, he's a deep thinker, but he's just not really interested in kind of giving himself over to, to simple answers or to what's convenient, what's comfortable. Um, and I find myself resonating with that part of my identity a lot more um, just feeling like the church isn't willing to ask hard questions, isn't willing to engage with the messiness of the world, that it just is this place to like run away to, to escape to. Um, and I kind of struggle with that. And so I, I had this deep yearning for the church to be a place of authenticity, um, but also just don't feel like it is, or at least it hasn't been in, in my experience. So David, I have to remember to call you fucking Malcolm. Um, <laughs> Please just Malcolm. 
not fucking Malcolm. Okay, <laughs> that, that's gonna be a t-shirt. Fucking Malcolm. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Malcolm, it's um, really interesting to hear you talk about your own journey and think about the ways in which it parallels with mine. Like that's what I love about conversation in one regard is you always get to know people more intimately and more deeply and find ways in which your lives are um, consistent with one another and dissonant with one another. But my mother was also raised uh, in a family with an alcoholic father and um, really latched on to the church as like her place. Like it's where she found purpose and meaning and identity. Um, she's read the Bible straight through multiple times. She likes Bible prophecy the most. God love her and I love her too. Um, and so we, I was raised in a Baptist church and my family was extremely religious. I self described them as the black religious mafia of Nashville, Tennessee. And so for me, the priority was always salvation. It was always about behavior modifications and salvation, right? So it's all about what you don't do. You don't drink because it'll get you pregnant. You don't cuss because it'll get you pregnant. You don't smoke because it'll get you pregnant. The only thing that didn't get you pregnant was having sex, apparently. That would get you an STD. So like, I learned about all these things that I shouldn't do, but we really talked about what you should do. We didn't talk about what it meant to actually live faithfully, at least not in precise terms. It was always, you gotta be faithful. You gotta trust God. You gotta believe God. But nobody told me what that meant and what that looked like. So what it left me feeling is, it left me feeling as if the church was um, not actually concerned with what it meant to be a human would have meant to be alive. It only could give me a recipe for what I shouldn't be doing. And that didn't help me live at all. So that's probably a good spot for a break. Hang out for a sec, folks. We'll be right back. All right, so we're just a couple of weeks away now from the election. Anybody heard about the election? That thing is, that thing is happening. Um, I'm just at a place right now where I think I'm a little bit sad with the state of humanity because there are still voters who are saying that they are undecided. I am so confused how any human could have a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and still be undecided. What is that about? A choice between Donald Trump and almost anyone and still like be undecided. Donald Trump and Cactus Jack. Donald Trump and Homer Simpson. I mean, I anybody. mean Donald Trump and Forrest Whitaker's lazy eye. Anybody. Like, give me anybody. One of the things that I keep thinking about is the fact that evangelical voters are some of the main folks who got Trump elected in the past. And in the spirit of this podcast, thinking about faith and politics, how can anybody read the Bible, claim to follow Jesus, be undecided and or committed to voting for Donald Trump? That's a, that's a hell of a question. Um, but there are lots of folks, I think just last week, my sister posted a similar question on Facebook. She's from rural Alabama, and there's a, a, a friend of the family who's a middle-aged black man who, who went to her inbox and was like, I wish you know, I could just help you all understand how, how Donald Trump is doing so much for the country and for black people. Who said this? I, oh, man, listen. Was the person black? He was black. Yeah. I, I, black? I, I've, had, I've actually had some conversations with him, some disagreements with him about politics, about religion. And I, I continue to believe that the biggest problem that we have um, is what we talked about earlier is number one, the church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and number two, and I, I may be declared a heretic for this, is the Bible. Hmm. Uh, and it's like one of, our, one of my professors in seminary said this because we, 
we, we practice bibliolatry. Mm-hmm. You know, God mm-hmm. is not God to us. The Bible is God to us. And it's rife with patriarchy. It's rife with um, all kind of problematic issues that we use, that we take, and we, we make these kind of monikers for us. We love these. We believe in these. And then we, we, tra- we transfer these as, as uh, what am I trying to say? We transfer these in as, as values for our life that we say so evangelicals now are saying they've conflated patriotism with religion, right? Mm-hmm. And so now to be patriotic is to be this good Christian. And so now I can advocate against immigration, although the Bible says you need to love the foreigner because you were once foreigners. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And so it's challenging. So you got this middle-aged black man who's supporting Donald Trump Mm. and and can't articulate why, but he's arguing. It's the same thing. It's the same reason I went to college and was saying women can't preach. It's the same reason that I was advocating for all these other things. I think the church is one of the biggest problems. I think the Bible and how we read and interpret scripture is also another problem. I think it's impossible to have this conversation without recognizing the power dynamics that are at play in America and particularly among white evangelical Christians. You know, I Trump in 2016, back before he got elected, um, made a speech at Liberty University. And the quote that everybody remembers from this particular speech is when he said he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody in the head, nobody would hold him accountable, right? That's the, we all are familiar with that quote. It's been repeated dozens and dozens of times. The other thing that he said in that speech, and the thing that I think really matters so much is Trump said to an evangelical audience at Liberty University in 2016, when I'm president, your way of life won't be looked down upon anymore. Mm. Mm. And that's Trump saying, this is about power. Mm. And you white evangelicals think that you are losing your power? Look to me and I can be your savior and I can restore that for you. Mm. And I think that, I, I come back to that idea and that claim over and over again when I think about white evangelicals who are willing to support Donald Trump a man who, I mean, you don't have to go through the litany of you know, all the shitty things he's done. We all know it. White evangelicals know it, but they're willing to overlook that because their own power and their own place in this country is more important to them than that. I, I just think you can't tell the story of Donald Trump without acknowledging that people, and it's especially white evangelical Christians, are fearful and want to grasp on to whatever semblance of power and control they can possibly find. And they're willing to do anything for it. And if we can't declare that as morally bankrupt, then I I mean, I don't even know what to say to you. Like, it's just so blatantly obvious to me. What intrigues me about that, Malcolm, is like, I do think it's all about power. I frequently wrestle with the question about like, how do you convince someone who believes they are benefiting from white supremacy, capitalism, or whatever the ism or, or archy is, that it's not good for them? How do you convince them that it's doing them harm, doing them damage? And for me, like the COVID-19 pandemic is a clear way that we should be saying, hey, this white supremacy is killing you. But instead, what we have are white people 
who are like anti-maskers. I refuse to wear a mask. I won't go to a Black Lives Matter protest and I'm going to holler all lives matter every time I hear one, but I will go to a protest that says I'm never going to wear a mask. So now we're at the place <laughs> that because you're so interested in maintaining power, you are actually killing yourself. I Man, I had a conversation with my stepmom. This is probably a month and a half ago. We were talking about wearing masks and she said, this is almost like word for word a direct quote. She said, I view wearing a mask as a symbolism of defeat. Mm. Defeat by oh. who or what? I, Sam, I wish I could answer that question for you. I have no idea. Because the same middle-aged black man that I was telling you about talked about this kind of freedom. America is a free country. Yeah. And then yeah. you hear from some evangelists or evangelicals that God will protect them or, or you know. And so I'm I'm interested to know like what what is the what what's the defeat? I mean Who's defeating I, them. I, to me I I wish I could answer that question. Um I will be honest, I was so kind of flabbergasted in the moment. The only thing I could think of to say was I view it as a sign of common decency. I, I'm not like conceding anything. I'm not defeated. I'm not like wearing a symbol of oppression. I'm showing that I care for the well-being of the people around me. That's what I said in response. I, I've continued to sort of you know think through like, well, what could you possibly be trying to communicate there by saying that it's a symbol of of defeat or of you know, losing some sort of freedom or whatever. And I think the, I mean, to me, not to get too deep into this, but, you know, political philosophers have this notion of positive and negative freedom, right? So positive freedom is like, or negative freedom, excuse me, is like the thing that you're not allowed to ask me to do. Like I am free from mm. your right to impose your will on me or whatever. But positive freedom is this idea that freedom actually generates other public goods, right? The, the purpose of my freedom is to make other people free. Right. And I think those on the right, and again, it's particularly white evangelical Christians, they are so focused on this idea of negative freedom. You have no right to ask me to do anything. Mm. And it's this grasp for power and this belief that only I matter and only people like me matter and only my own personal freedom matters. And to me, one of the real pressing issues in our country today is, is reclaiming a concept of positive freedom, that, we, that we're all in this together, that your freedom doesn't just insulate you from other people, but it actually makes you responsible for their well-being, for their flourishing. Sometimes you got to get the fuck out of the way. Mm. But I just, I, I think that there's just <laughs> such a narrow understanding of freedom as you don't have the right to ask me to do anything. And at the end of the day, that's ignorant and it's selfish. There's no other way to put it. But it's not just the conservative folks who are doing that. I mean, sure. there's progressive folks who are saying, I'm not going to wear a mask because you're going to tell me what to do. And, but which is completely against, um, against the gospel. Like if you're, if you're, if the purpose of my freedom is the power to make everyone else free, then that is, that's what I, Katie Ricks, believe the gospel is. Um, so I just don't get it. If the reality is that we all we have to do is physical distance and wear a mask and wash our hands, that's the easiest way to stop a, a global pandemic. But we got people not caring about anybody else, whether they're conservative or liberal or moderate. It doesn't matter. It's like it's just this deep um, 
lack of discipleship, which is where the church ends up not teaching people how to live in the world. And the pandemic is actually only one sort of microcosm of a broader issue, right? Mask wearing is not the only issue here that's at play. Like it is about a broader political climate and a broader broader, uh, world wherein white supremacy reigns. And people are convinced that their own individual Uh, perspectives, desires, needs should reign supreme and nothing else should matter. Now we've seen what this has done historically, right? We've seen like when one person convinces other people that look like them that they're entitled to certain things and they go and own people (laughs) into ill for centuries. But I'm just, I'm still trying to wrestle with what is there to be said about a religion and a political economy that does this sort of bidding against black people, against poor people, against LGBTQ folks, against women folks, and does it so effectively that we don't even realize it's happening 90% of the time. I saw the White House, I think last week uh, around Columbus Day, I saw the White House put out this this thing that where Trump was saying, you know, we've we've denigrated our beautiful history and people want to want to strip us of this history and how Christopher Columbus came and did these great things. Christopher Columbus came and pillaged and stole and murdered and killed and claimed for white folks something that already belonged to other people. And the fact that we live in a country that identifies itself as primarily Christian, who will have a government say that we will not allow the teaching of of diversity or inclusion because we want to maintain this, this, this reality of white superiority, which is exactly what it is, speaks exactly to what Malcolm was talking about, maintaining this grasp on power. The sad part is, is that these folks also identify as Christian. A religion where our savior, uh, supposedly savior, uh, gave up the power that, that, that he had, the historical Jesus, to come and be powerless in a world, to become like a slave or like a servant, the translation says. How can we identify with both of those? a government and a society that does everything to hold on to power and a savior that gave up all of the power that he had. Please come help me explain that. I'm sorry, I just preached like a <laughs> I whole show. I was like, I was like uh, really full on preaching mode. You I was just like, you I could have took a text in. The only thing that we need to do is open the doors of the church <laughs> <laughs> and invite people to come sit on the mourner's bench. <laughs> sit on the mourner's bench, plenty of room. Right. This is a time maybe we need to start over. <laughs> I mean, what, Sorry, with the country or with, well, with Christianity? <laughs> okay, <laughs> yes. yes. Because it's not yes. necessarily, what you said, it's not the president and the vice president that worries me so much. It's the brand of Christianity yes. that can say, I want this. I want this, this government that maintains white supremacy while also worshiping the Savior who gave up power to be identified with the folks on the margins. How can you... How can you reconcile the two? How can both, you have both? Right. And if that's your brand of Christianity, that's what we need to start over. So I mean, let, let's, we can start to wrap it up here. I think the closing question that I wanna invite each of us to consider for a moment is, what's up with the church and these folks who claim to follow Jesus and what should we do with it? I would answer that question with a question, which is probably not surprising to y'all. Um, what do we mean when we talk about the church? Like what, what is the, the church? And I think I can envision at least two responses to that. 
And I would answer your question very differently depending on which definition we choose. If the church is the institution, if it's the denominational body, if it's the hierarchies that exist, if it's the current manifestation of institutionalized religion, I have like no desire to waste my time. So the, the early church, um, this group of people who are very different from one another, Jews and Gentiles, um, people who have radically different life experiences coming together around a common experience of a transformative power that calls them to live differently in the world and a community where that happens, and I'm all in for it. I just wonder how that gets practiced on a big scale. I wonder how that gets sort of projected outward in an ever-expanding fashion. Malcolm, I think it's a helpful way to frame it to think about asking the question in two ways. Are we talking about the institutional church, the physical space? Are we talking about something deeper and beyond that that doesn't exist inside of a building? My um, issue is when we push beyond the physical structure, there are all these other assumptions that exist in that space um, that remain unchecked and unquestioned. Like, I'm of the mindset that the church has to go. And there's a way in which it's been so effective in perpetuating white supremacy and perpetuating evil and hatred in the world because it has all these unquestioned assumptions that exist below the surface that it actually isn't worth saving. And whatever it is we hold as hopeful, as truthful, um, as life-giving, as beautiful from the church, it's gonna have to emerge in a completely different way in something that we don't call church. And perhaps under a moniker we don't name as Jesus. Well, I was with you until you said your last sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I consider myself to be a progressive evangelical. You went too far. <laughs> Christian self. But no, I, I mean, I, I, what Malcolm is saying is exactly what I said in my farewell letter to the church I served in North Carolina when I left six years ago, which is I can't imagine what it looks like to have this authentic, messy relationship in a big church, like in something other than five or six people gathered together around a dinner table, which is what some friends and I then created after that. I don't think that could happen, but, but I'm, I'm pretty Jesus oriented, but, but I, but I am intrigued by the early church that had Jews and Gentiles and slave and free like that. That's, um, that's appealing to me. That is how we understand the depth of God, but I'm going to bring Jesus. I'm not saying, uh, for the record, I'm not saying check Jesus at the door. I think that I would push toward like a, a historical understanding of Jesus or either a universal understanding of the Christ. Like I'm not certain which one I want to latch onto, but what I am attempting to say is just as there's so much shit baked into church and what we mean by that, that same shit exists in what we've baked into Jesus. Jesus is a concept that we deploy to do our own bidding, whether that's good or evil. I'm attempting to ask the question, who was Jesus historically? What did Jesus espouse? And then what is this broader ideal about the Christ that exists beyond time, beyond space, beyond our, any of our conceptions or imagination? So I'm, I, you can have Jesus. I'm not demanding that anybody leaves Jesus at the door. I'm just asking the question, 
what have you baked into Jesus? You can have Jesus, he said. <laughs> I can have him. <laughs> I mean, I take him all. <laughs> I might take him too. I love Jesus. Like, don't, don't get me started on my Spotify gospel playlist. Like, I will sing the heavens down oh, for Jesus. Lord. I think I'm a bit of a pessimist when it comes to kind of some of the things Brandon are, t- are talking about simply because in, in me talking about things being baked in, I think I'm appealing more to the psychological reality of trashing the church and doing something else. Mm-hmm. I believe um, it's in, it's, it, it, in some ways it is baked in because we have done it for generations and millennia. And unless there's a huge gap, I feel like, where it ceases to exist where we have generations that don't know what this church, this toxic church was, and then we start a new church, I think that we will continue to carry over the toxic, the toxicities of the current institution no matter what we do. And, and, it's not, and that's not to excuse people. That's not to, I mean, I mean that's modern-day psychology. Like, I mean, there's a reality that these things are, are ingrained within us, within our psyche, within our understanding, because it, for some of us, it's all we, we've known. And that's, again, that's not to excuse. But how do you then create something that, that does not exist from something that does exist um, when we still carry the baggage, um, the weight, the memory? Of of what the toxic church is, and so even the best, the folks with the best intentions, if you scrap the current church and try to build another one, I think it, it, you're going to get particles, morsels of this church that we say needs to go. And I'm in agreement with you, Brandon. I think it does need to go, um, but I think I'm I think I'm a few generations away from what that actual reality looks like, because if our if the generations behind us, if our children try to create it, they have their own experiences of toxic church reality that are also going to inform them trying to create a new church. Last word, and then we'll go out. Um, I think for me, I, I make very strong claims sometimes, and I don't do so for the sake of being provocative. I do it to locate myself explicitly because I think that's important for everyone to do. That's one way that we actually get at the truth by showing up fully, locating ourselves, naming our truth that exists in this particular moment explicitly, and understanding that others are gonna do the same, and that might shift all of our perspectives of the truth, um, or what the truth is that exists beyond ourselves. One of my deepest commitments is to always remember my mother, my grandmother, and whatever I'm doing. And what I know is that there are ways in which the very things that sometimes I critique, some things sometimes that I hate, um, provide, provide the sort of sustenance or the, provide the strength um, that's necessary to keep pressing on and to keep making it through another day. And what I um, will always say is that I am the person that I am today because I was raised um, in a context that valued Jesus and that valued gathering on Sunday mornings. Um, That community was called Lake Providence Missionary Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And I am who I am today because of that religious community. Now, they didn't know how to hold me fully and still don't. But I would not be the person that I am today without that religious community. And I think that that's a lot of people's truths. I'm never here to destroy anything, to break anything down. I'm not the the destructive type. or the anarchist, but um, I am someone who wants to ask deeper questions about spirituality, church, faith, and to also inspire and empower others 
to let go of some of the spiritual baggage that's no longer life-giving for them. And I think that's the goal of uh, this podcast. That's the goal of um, these conversations. And it might not feel like it's wrapped up in a pretty little bow and it might feel like dissonance, but what we hope you'll take from this is the um, desire and the willingness to hold your truth tight, um, but not too tightly. Because at some point you might have to let it go. All right, folks, that's a wrap on our first episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thanks for listening in. Next week, David will welcome our first guest to The Mourner's Bench, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove. We'll also have a conversation about the religious undertones of progressive liberalism and the ways in which that functions as a religion in and of itself. Listen, we love feedback. We're just getting started here. So if you have questions or suggestions, send us an email at whatsupatthefeolab.com. Let us know what you're thinking. You can also follow us on social media. We're at The Theo Lab on all channels. Tweet us, DM us, inbox us. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see y'all next week with Jonathan Wilson Hartfield.